from NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In northern Idaho, the Environmental Protection Agency is trying to make the best of a bad situation. The EPA has poured asphalt over an old mining rail line to make one of the longest bike trails in the nation. And some folks are pleased with the results. I mean, we've been on bicycle on rail trails all over the country, and, and this is the best rail trail I've ever been on. But others say the government has just paved over the problem, and they don't think attracting tourists to an environmental hazard is such a good idea. It's, it's beautiful, but it's contaminated, and this is a super fund. It's not a recreational trail. Turning poisoned land into a playground. Also, the independent agency that regulates air pollution in California and sets trends for the nation is now in the crosshairs of the Schwarzenegger administration. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As California trudged forward under the weight of its record-setting debt, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger deputized a group of state employees to hold a magnifying glass to the expense sheet of state government. Now their examination is done, and they claim the nation's most populous and indebted state could save an average of $6 billion a year over the next five years by eliminating or consolidating many state agencies. But as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, one recommendation may come as a shock to clean air advocates around the nation. The budget review culminated in a giant warehouse chosen for its symbolic value, a place where the state currently spends or wastes some $94,000 a month storing old furniture and computers. Amid fanfare, the reviewers presented their six-inch sheaf of cost-cutting recommendations. Governor, this is volume one, and this is volume two. Many Californians, including environmentalists, agree the state could well stand to reduce agency overlap and eliminate unnecessary boards, but most were surprised to see the California Air Resources Board proposed for elimination. Tim Carmichael is executive director of the Coalition for Clean Air. The suggestion that we would eliminate one of the most effective agencies in the world, not just the state, but in the world, at reducing air pollution is really curious. The California Air Resources Board is credited with pushing for new, clean technology that then becomes the standard across the country. Cleaner gasoline, cleaner boat engines, lawnmowers, paints. The results are measured in tons of pollutants kept out of the air. Several people I spoke with think the budget reviewers swept the Air Resources Board into their broader recommendations to eliminate 118 boards and commissions, which can be quite costly to run. But some people, like Gail ruderman Fuhr of the Natural Resources Defense Council, think this is not simply a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I assume industry had a direct hand in it, and it was very purposeful. But I, you know, I don't know specifically who met with whom. Clearly, the auto industry would be thrilled with this recommendation. Or maybe not. One industry source wasn't so sure that dissolving the Air Resources Board would mean an improvement. There would still be an air pollution division, but it would be under the state's environment chief, Terry Tamanen. 
And could the proposed elimination of the air agency be an attempt to kill its new effort to regulate carbon dioxide and tailpipe exhaust? No way, says Tamanen. The governor's committed to it. He said in uh, the Los Angeles Times and other places that he uh, fully supports California's landmark greenhouse gas law and intends to defend it from the anticipated court challenges along the way. I mean, those are literally his words. Tamanen says any department reorganization might yield greater scrutiny of industry. And he rejects the refrain that environmental regulation means a steady loss of business in California. He cites the example of a new Fox animation studio that would have brought lots of new jobs. But they ultimately chose to build it in Arizona. And the top two reasons that they cited for making that change were not the cost of doing business or environmental regulations. It was rather the lack of it. It was uh, traffic and air pollution. They didn't want to raise their families in, uh, in the community as they found it in Southern California. The recommendations of the budget reviewers are in any case very preliminary. They'll have to pass through many screens, a special panel, public hearings, the governor, and then the legislature. And if he doesn't find success there, Arnold Schwarzenegger may try to bring the overhaul in some form directly to the voters. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. Joining me now is a man who has helped craft and push through new air pollution laws in California, Russell Long. He's director of the Blue Water Network in San Francisco, and his group has been heavily involved in efforts to reduce emissions from ships and increase fuel efficiency in the auto industry. His latest project takes aim at the Ford Motor Company in the form of a full-page ad that appeared recently in the New York Times. The ad lists what the group considers Ford's failings towards the environment and goes so far as to ask people to boycott Ford vehicles. Russell Long, welcome. Thank you very much. Could you describe this ad for us as it uh, appears in the New York Times? Well, the first ad we ran depicts Bill Ford with an extended Pinocchio nose, and it goes on to mention that Mr. Ford has made various pledges to protect the environment, including the pledge on increasing fuel mileage 25 percent. And in year 2003, he reneged on that. And we subsequently ran another ad recently, which actually shows the fuel mileage of the top three auto manufacturers in the U.S., uh, Ford, GM, and Toyota. And Ford is at the bottom and getting worse, and it's been continuing to get worse for the past four years, ever since Bill Ford took over the company. And at the very bottom of the ad, of course, we have coupons to cut out that readers can send to us. We forward those to Mr. Ford that state, I pledge not to buy a Ford until you clean up your cars and you go to Congress and ask them to voluntarily increase the nation's auto mileage efficiency. Until then, the planet can't afford a Ford. Now, what kind of response did you get from uh, Bill Ford, the CEO of Ford Motor? Uh, it, it seems that there's a fine line between a group's right to speak and, uh, and questions of slandering or, or, or defaming him or holding him up to public ridicule. Um, what kind of legal action has there been in response to these ads? Well, they sent us a, a cease-and-desist letter from their attorneys, and we had to meet with our own attorneys to find out whether or not we'd violated the law, and our attorney said no. Uh, other than one extremely minor copy edit in our ad, uh, they thought we were just fine. And so we let Ford know that we'd ha we were happy to make the minor copy edit change. But, you know, I, unfortunately, I think this is not the way you do business today. I think Ford has invested too heavily in attorneys rather than going out there and just getting the engineers to do the job right in the first place. 
I notice there's no uh, Pinocchio depiction in your recent ad. Uh, how much is that a function of the uh, request, the letter from Ford, uh, asking for a cease and, and desisting using that kind of imagery? Well, it has more to do with the New York Times, unfortunately. They... They received some phone calls, apparently, from Bill Ford's office, and there was a great deal of gnashing of teeth, and the New York Times decided they didn't want to run that Pinocchio ad anymore. They're okay with caricatures, but they felt this went a little farther than they liked. As far as the new ad, you know, we were not going to continue to run the Pinocchio nose anyway. I think the important thing here is the American public needs to understand this company is not a leader. They are a follower, and they are the worst of the bunch when it comes to fuel mileage. We have tried to be in touch with the Ford Motor Company about your advertisements, and uh, they have declined to sit for an interview with us. Um, But we should point out in Ford's favor that they have taken some green initiatives, and they are building a hybrid SUV, the Ford Escape, which on its own gets pretty good mileage. Uh, Shouldn't Ford get some kind of credit for uh, taking these efforts to move forward? I think they've done a great job with that vehicle. Uh, I think it'll be getting 30, 35 miles a gallon, and that's a big improvement over what we see with typical SUVs. But the problem is it's not going to do anything on a large scale to decrease their emissions or to increase their fuel mileage averages. And until we see that hybrid technology in every single vehicle which they are building, it's really not going to do a tremendous amount. What kind of response have you had uh to these ads. In particular, how many customers do you think your efforts are turning away from Ford? Well, we've been receiving hundreds of letters from around the country, people signing these pledge coupons saying they're not going to buy Ford vehicles. And it's important that Ford no longer be perceived as having an environmental halo. In fact, that halo rightfully belongs to Toyota and to Honda, who really have done tremendous things for the environment over the past 10 years. And I think Ford is uh, headed in the right direction with this one hybrid they have. But until they have a fleet of them, unfortunately, we're not going to be where we need to go. Russell Long is the director of the Blue Water Network in San Francisco. Mr. Long, thanks for taking this time with me today. My pleasure. It wasn't long ago that Blue Water and other nonprofit groups were not able to place ads in high-profile publications like the New York Times. That's because rates for prime advertising space were expensive. But today, major newspapers and magazines are making room for cash-poor nonprofits and advocacy groups, the kind of groups Joe Terrian represents. He's an account executive with the Public Media Center, the ad agency responsible for placing the Boycott Ford ad in the New York Times. Mr. Terrian, welcome. Thank you very much, Mr. Kerwood. Now, I understand you've been in the ad business for quite a while. How have you observed the advertising market opening up to advocacy groups that may be on a shoestring budget? It's a significant change. It makes available powerful podiums like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, at prices that nonprofits can afford that they wouldn't otherwise be able to use. Now, I'm wondering what exactly these special advertising rates are that are being offered to nonprofits. Well, if you wanted to buy a full page in the New York Times, the rate card tells you it would cost you net $127,000. But if you are a nonprofit or advocacy group that doesn't have a tight timeline, then if you are a client of mine, I would suggest that you look at what's called a standby rate. You give the Times the authority to run your ad in the window of a week or two weeks or three weeks, you could get that same ad for $39,000. 
Now, in many cases, of course, these messages could be quite aggressive and confrontational. And uh, what's been some of the most particularly challenging cases that, that you've tried to pre present in terms of getting them to, these ads to pass muster? Well, um, we had an ad several years ago that called on readers to um, boycott Japanese goods because Japan was the leading purchaser of tiger penises, and its popularity as a medicine was causing the destruction of tigers throughout Asia. There was a very considerable fight with the editors of a major West Coast newspaper. Ultimately, they finally agreed to run it since there was nothing lascivious about the ad. It was simply a statement of the part of the anatomy of the animal that was causing the destruction of the entire animal. It's good to have that kind of a test because they will make you prove your point. If you can substantiate the truth of what you're saying, you are not going to find resistance you can't overcome. Joe Terrian is the principal with the Public Media Center in San Francisco. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. The Ford Motor Company declined to comment for this story, but did send us a list of its environmental commitments. These include investments in hydrogen fuel cell and biodiesel technologies and hybrid electric vehicles. And later this fall, the company's first, quote, no-compromise hybrid electric SUV, the Escape, is expected in showrooms. But in Ford's recent corporate citizenship report, the company noted that the fuel economy for its U.S. fleet will decrease by more than 2% this year. Ford says the reason for the decrease is due to its decision to cut production of its ethanol-burning vehicles. Coming up, from toxic trail to bike path, the EPA paves over a Superfund site and invites tourists and controversy. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Throughout the West, communities are trying to establish new recreation-based economies over the old ones built on mining. The Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's is a literal example. This new bike trail in northern Idaho converts an old mining-era rail line to recreational use. It's one of the longest rails-to-trails projects in America. But beneath the miles of the fresh asphalt, there is also toxic mining debris strewn along the length of the line. Indeed, some call it a recreational Superfund site, a trail for bikers, hikers, and skaters built to contain contaminants and promote tourism. Producer Guy Hand cycled the trail of the Coeur d'Alene's to see if this exploited piece of the American West can bury its past and pave the way to a brighter future. It's not surprising that when the Coeur d'Alene's bike trail officially opened in June, people in the North Idaho mining towns that dot its path were ready to celebrate. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting started here. This 72-mile-long black strip of asphalt running through the mountains is a symbol of hope for residents who've been living under the label Superfund site for over 20 years a label that many say has been toxic to tourism, despite the region's stunning beauty. And today, on behalf of Union Pacific, I'd like to present to the uh, uh, citizens of uh, the entire Pacific Northwest, the state of Idaho, and the Coeur d'Alene tribe, I present to you the uh, Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's. Ed Maureen is project manager with the Environmental Protection Agency. When we were still constructing the trail, it was, uh, it was evident that the people in, in the basin were excited about the trail. In fact, when the contractors were placing the asphalt, it was still steaming, and people were right behind the paver wanting to ride down the, the path on their bikes. 
At the trail's eastern end, where I begin my bike ride, the rail line doesn't hide its polluted past. A sign explains how tailings laced with lead, cadmium, zinc, and arsenic were used to build the rail bed itself. Ore dust also drifted out of open or damaged rail cars. It spilled from derailed ones. It piled up in loading areas. Over a century, heavy metals so contaminated the rail line that in places, soil measured 80 times the EPA's safe lead level. This part of the trail goes right through the mining town of Kellogg. This is the town that is home to the Bunker Hill Mine and Smelter, where some of the worst pollution occurred during the mining era. Uh, you can see on the hills around the town, the trees are, are still stunted from uh, the tainted smoke that came out of the smelters. As concentrated as the rail line pollution is, it pales in comparison to the massive amounts produced by other sources. In addition to smelter smoke, mines dumped waste directly into waterways, killing all the fish in some streams. Before the EPA stepped in in 1983, the nearby Coeur d'Alene River ran gray from mine runoff, and local children suffered the highest blood lead levels ever recorded. But soon the trail leaves the more obvious signs of mining pollution behind and rolls through a landscape that looks pristine, but still isn't. Lead concentrates under this part of the trail average nearly 8,000 parts per million, or eight times the Superfund site's safety standard. Gorgeous meadows off to my left. The stubborn beauty of this place, the steep mountains, lush meadows, and shimmering waterways, has the power to wash away concerns about lead-tainted soil. And that's just fine with Joe Peak, a businessman with high hopes for the economic future of these mining towns. The bike trail runs right in front of Peak's bar and restaurant, the Snake Pit. Right outside we have two bike, uh, bike racks, and those bike racks on weekends are full. Usually on Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoons, it's not a, unheard of for 50 to 60 percent of our business to be uh, trail related. Let me get some customers. Peek's a little distracted on this early Saturday evening. The place is packed. He figures the trail is adding $100,000 a year to his business. We could get anywhere from 75 to 150,000 visits per, per year. And uh, we feel that the, the spinoff on that could be as high as $14 million a year in the Silver Valley and the, the corridor from Mullen to uh, Plummer. Need some change? Just west of Peak's Place, the trail heads into some of the most stunning country of the ride. Wow. I've just come around a bend through a narrow little draw and it opens up into a big valley. Spectacular. A little further along, I meet a young woman pulling her son in a kid cart behind her bike. Do you ride the trail very often? No, this is my first time on the trail. I'm actually from Colfax, Washington. Oh, really? Yes. Who's riding him back? Uh, this is Adam. He is two years old. So he's not quite ready for a bicycle yet. So what do you think of the trail? Oh, I like it. It's great. How do you like the trail? I think it's amazing. It's gorgeous. <laughs> I find myself forgetting that just under the two and a half inches of asphalt I glide over, there's lead, arsenic, and more. 
Lead is a neurotoxin. It impairs cognitive abilities, especially in children. Arsenic, a potent carcinogen, can cause skin lesions and cardiovascular problems. But the EPA says the trail is perfectly safe as long as you obey the occasional signs warning you to clean your hands before eating, stop only at designated rest areas, and stay on the asphalt. Yet, it's tempting to wander off. On this hot afternoon, a dip in the cool Coeur d'Alene River is hard to resist. The river and lake parallel nearly the entire length of the trail, but hold some of the highest concentrations of mine poisons in the nation. Still, a little further along, I see two young girls fishing, ankle-deep in the river. Most Superfund cleanups do not remove the last atom of contamination. Um, In the Coeur d'Alene Basin, there's no way we'd ever remove the last atom of lead. Some lead is actually naturally occurring here. Clifford Villa, assistant regional counsel for the EPA, says that it's often easier to control the human usage of a contaminated area than to remove the contaminants themselves. It's an approach the EPA has employed at Love Canal and many other National Superfund sites. And here, when EPA determined it was impractical to remove the entire 72 miles of railbed contamination, a bike trail capping the problem seemed the best solution. One thing that the Rails to Trails program allows us is to ensure the use of an area for recreational purposes. We actually did a risk assessment before the trail was constructed that estimated that people could use a trail up to 24 hours per week. That's some pretty intensive running or biking um, without any cause for concern about existing contamination. But what about those two girls I saw fishing off the trail? Before the trail was built, people were using this corridor anyway. So we know people were here, and we're not going to keep people off. We're just going to try to control that use and promote uh, safe uses as much as possible. Via says the EPA can't eliminate all risk, but since people are going to use the area anyway, he believes the trail has made things much safer. In fact, he considers the trail one of his biggest Superfund successes. It's it's very satisfying to not only take something away in the form of contamination, but to leave something behind in terms of something that all the people of this area can can appreciate from, from here on. Well, as you can see, the trail actually comes by our uh, hay shed there. Farmer Mike Schlepp shows me where the trail of the Coeur d'Alene's cuts through his 550-acre farm at about milepost 33. He's a vocal critic of the trail and doubts the wisdom of attracting tourists to a Superfund site. All of us landowners have had problems with people getting off the trail and wandering onto private property. The EPA's own study admits that the trail will probably entice visitors to pick berries and wander off trail to hike, fish, or swim. The study says those, quote, off-trail exposures fall beyond the scope of the trail plan. We actually had a family that left the right-of-way and were attempting to set up a overnight camping spot with their children One of the children was uh, still an infant, and we did explain that they were actually having their children recreate on a heavy metal site and asked them to leave. And really, they were quite belligerent. Uh, Regretfully, they just went down the trail about a mile and a half and set up camp for the night 
just off the right-of-way. The EPA says trail managers will catch violators like these, but Schlepp argues that the former owner of the line, Union Pacific Railroad, should have removed the contamination altogether, just like any other landowner. I have not seen anywhere in Superfund law that it says that if a polluter can actually make the problem big enough that uh, he can be relieved from cleaning it up because it's just too big. The EPA is expanding its Superfund work from the worst-hit mining towns to the entire basin, but now that the railroad is enshrined as a bike trail, the cleanup Schlepp hoped for will never reach his property. He says that every time it floods, and it floods frequently here, the contaminants contained in the trail get flushed into his fields. They will eventually have the entire basin cleaned up, except for this 150-foot-wide swath of contamination that goes right through the underbelly of the basin. Riding on the trail south of Harrison, I come across several signs put up by landowners. One sign says, wash your hands before you eat, toxic trail under your feet. That sign was painted and put up by Tony and Raj Hardy. The reality is this trail locks in a solution that we, we find unacceptable. This is a Superfund. It's not a recreational trail. It is a Superfund. Raj Hardy says the bike path just doesn't properly cover a contaminated railroad that, like a Mayan pyramid, is flat and narrow on top but has exposed sides sloping out to a much broader base. Well, as you can see standing here, the asphalt's uh, only about 10 feet wide, and by the time you get down to the base of it, it's about 100 feet wide. So you've only really capped about 10% of it. The rest is subject to uh, rain and snowmelt washing the stuff out into the lake and wetlands. The EPA covered the sloping sides with a thick layer of crushed rock, and Hardy agrees that trail users are at little risk as long as they heed warning signs. His concerns are for those who live along the trail. It's absolutely correct that the people that live here that will continue to play as their predecessors have in, in the beaches are going to get their dose of lead that, that's being supplied by these causeways that are being frozen in place. And what about those residents who don't read, like ducks? Dan Audette, environmental contaminant specialist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're collecting blood samples from the waterfowl, which we'll analyze for lead. Uh, in addition, we're looking at the sediments where the birds are feeding, because these birds ingest sediment as they uh, are feeding on various plants in the wetland system. Lead kills tundra swans, Canada geese, wood ducks, pintails, mallards, and more. We've had 12 species documented over years uh, that have died from lead poisoning. Um, we suspect that hundreds of birds each year die from, from lead poisoning that are never found. But since the railroad is only one of many sources of mine pollution in the basin, no one knows to what extent the trail is poisoning an already poisoned watershed. Audette hopes to find out. There are areas that seem to be leaching into the lake, and whether those are, are truly contaminated, we hope to get a better handle on what the sediment concentrations are this year through this study. If sediments are leaching, the EPA says it will adapt and manage the trail differently. But critics argue that Superfund is seriously underfunded, and the EPA is under considerable pressure from Idaho politicians and business interests to play down the pollution problem. 
Critics say the EPA rushed to cover the railroad's past with a thin layer of asphalt. Toward its west end, the trail enters Native American land, where people are in no rush to cover up the past. In fact, for the Coeur d'Alene tribe, the trail was a footpath long before the mining era. Robert Matt of the Coeur d'Alene tribe. That entire watershed was, was our homeland. And when the government in the early 1900s, when, when they started taking our lands from us, you know, there were promises that were made to the tribe about preserving the integrity of the resources and, and we would forever be able to have these our traditional way of life preserved. Well, today, many of those um, traditional uses and opportunities have been eliminated by the mining contamination and by the sediment. In a sense, the tribe created the new bike trail as well as the ancient footpath. In 1991, it was the tribe who sued Union Pacific Railroad and mining groups, demanding a cleanup of the entire basin, including the total removal of railway contamination. Though that goal is still far off, it jump-started the notion of a bike trail. Matt says the tribe sees the path not as a way to bury the past, but as a way to confront it, with signs and kiosks on the tribal section of the trail that illustrate the need for further cleanup. Sometimes the information that needs to be put out isn't always attractive for tourists or um, economic development opportunities and those sorts of things, and that's where we tend to get crossways with folks. But we're, we're insistent that all the facts get put out and that people are made aware, and we, we do that in hopes of finding support for cleanup. At the western end of the Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's, tribe members are celebrating the official opening of the trail. Well, there's, there's, so much, there's so much strength and there's so much power in this trail. I looked at the faces of my own children here. I look at the faces of the children of, of the Silver Valley, and they have hope now. The Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's offers both hope and a very good bike ride. The two kind of go together. After all, you can't help but feel encouraged with a warm breeze and beautiful scenery sliding by. But as I bike this basin, I'm also struck by how, compared to the mountains and valleys around me, how ephemeral, how fragile this trail seems. It's not a work of geology, yet we hope it will act like one, that it will withstand time, rain, and erosion with the patience of granite. The Union Pacific Railroad promises, as part of its agreement with the EPA, to maintain the trail forever. But that's a very long time. Here in the Coeur d'Alene Basin, we've created a pollution problem that some say could last for centuries. We can only hope that our solutions are as enduring. For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Hand. The author of Diet for a Small Planet has a recipe for overcoming our fears about environmental disaster. Francis Moore LePay is just ahead. First, this environmental health note from Jennifer Chu. A new study gives weight to evidence that where you live can make you large. The Georgia Institute of Technology has completed a $4 million seven-year study of 8,000 households in Atlanta. The goal was to learn how people spent their time, where they traveled, and how they reached their destinations. 
In the end, researchers found that community design clearly relates to your risk of becoming overweight. People who lived in neighborhoods within easy walking distance of shops and businesses were 7% less likely to be obese. Commuting has the reverse effect. For every 30 minutes you spend in a car, your chance of being obese increases by 3%. The study also shows that higher densities of streets, businesses, and residences contribute to fewer vehicle miles traveled, reduced emissions, and greater use of public transportation. This is the first study to demonstrate that the built environment immediately around people's homes is a good predictor of weight. Researchers hope the results will increase the demand for smart growth neighborhoods and limit sprawl. They also note that one third of the study's suburban respondents said they would prefer to live in a smart growth environment. That's this week's health note. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. Ford presenting the Escape Hybrid, whose full hybrid technology allows it to run on gas or electric power. Full hybrid technology details at FordVehicles.com. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now for comments from you, our listeners. Our look at the environmental records of Democratic presidential nominee John Kerry and vice presidential nominee John Edwards was appreciated by many listeners. Among them, Jill Harmer from Louisville, Kentucky. Called in to request that we continue this type of political reporting well past the campaign season. I really appreciate your telling about the candidates' views on the environment in the last program. That's what we need—the real issues. And um, I would like in the future for us to to have issues not just before the election, but、uh, timely things, so we can call in and comment on them to the right places. Thank you so much for that special last program. Our roundtable discussion examining Senator Kerry's campaign proposals for energy independence also struck a chord with listeners. Steve Delasi in Arlington, Virginia, believes it was a stretch when our guest from the Energy Future Coalition, Reed Detchen, said a hike in the gas tax wouldn't cut oil consumption because demand for gasoline is to a certain extent inelastic. While gasoline demand is inelastic in the short run, it is much more elastic in the long run. Mr. Delasi writes. Higher gasoline prices would, in the long run, motivate consumers to purchase fuel-efficient vehicles, utilize mass transit, choose to live near where they work, and alter their behavior in other ways, which would reduce consumption. Calvin E. Hilton Jr., who hears us on WJCT in Jacksonville, Florida, also disputes Mr. Deschen's comment that a gas tax would not change consumer behavior because transportation is not a discretionary purchase. People spend a lot of time in their cars that is discretionary, and people can decide to buy more fuel-efficient cars to offset higher gas prices. He writes, "I'm surprised that no one challenged his statement." Finally, our report on the fate of Waterfront South, a neighborhood in Camden, New Jersey, drew several comments. City officials there are inviting in more industry to spur jobs and tax revenue, but residents in the largely Black and Latino communities say they already bear more than their share of pollution. Margaret Betts in Savannah, Georgia, writes. Focused on the sensitive issues affecting the people there, 
The story demonstrated the environmental racism evident in our nation's long-standing practices of dumping polluting industries into areas of the city's poorest families. The same injustice is so very evident on the coast of Georgia. Your comments are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write us at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can hear our program anytime on our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. It's been more than 30 years since a little-known student from Fort Worth, Texas, dropped out of graduate school and proposed a diet for the planet that made her a best-selling author and an international food expert. Francis Moore LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, hit stands with a message that reached more than 3 million readers. Hunger, she wrote, is not caused by a scarcity of food, but by a scarcity of democracy. Now, she and co-author Jeffrey Perkins have singled out the one underlying cause for not just the food problems of the world, but also for many of the environmental problems that plague the planet. In their new book, they outline how fear is the main factor when it comes to dealing with our environment. Frances Morlapay joins me in the studio now to talk about her book, You Have the Power, Choosing Courage in a Culture of Fear. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much, Steve. Now, Jeff Perkins is going to join us later in the conversation, but first I'd like to put this book in the context of your life, Francis, or everyone calls you Frankie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's back up a little to the days before A Diet for a Small Planet. What, uh, what led to this book? Well, I was a desperate 20-something. I really wanted to understand why so much suffering in the world. And this was the era, this was the late 60s, and the world hunger crisis had just sprung onto the international marquee, if you will. And I thought if I could just understand why hunger, and then why hunger in a world of plenty, that that would begin to untangle the economic and political order that seemed so impenetrable. And I, I focused in on food and realized in my own modest study that, in fact, there was more than enough food to make us all chubby. And yet, millions and millions were going hungry. And that was really the awakening for me. So how did your book help address this? Well, it simply said, look, we human beings have created hunger uh, out of plenty. We cr we're creating scarcity every day because hungry people can't make a quote-unquote market demand for the food they need. So we have these artificial surpluses that we feed to livestock, that in the U.S. to produce meat, we... Re we feed uh, 16 pounds of grain and soy to produce one pound of beef. And so I wanted to just awaken people that it's in our hands. We have the power, if you will, to solve this problem, that we can create a sustainable food system in which we all can eat. And that was the thesis of Diet for a Small Planet. And it sells millions of copies. What was the appeal? I think the appeal is that the message of the book is that what's healthiest for my body is healthiest for the earth itself. And it changed me very profoundly as well be oh. because I realized I wasn't alone. I mean, I was just a kid writing this book, and then millions of people responded and said, oh, yes, I feel that way, too. I want my choices to matter, too. And so I felt I was not alone, and I realized that most human beings want a better world. And so ever since then, I've been asking myself, how can it be that not one of us, if we went out on the street today, not one of us could find someone who would say, yes, I think it's a great thing that 16,000 children are dying today of hunger, and yet... Millions are going hungry. So the question that has pushed me on to this book is, how can it be 
that we as societies are creating a world that as individuals we abhor. And when I peel away all of those layers, ultimately it does come down to our own fear. And that's what this book addresses. That it's fear of the unknown, fear of being different, of separating from the pack. Because we humans evolved in tribes over eons of time where we became hardwired to understand that separating from the pack could mean death. And so I would go so far as to say, and Jeff in my book says that maybe the most important decision we have to make today is how we respond to fear. In fact, in some ways, I'm kind of hoping that uh, this book could help people feel a little bit of pride when they're feeling those sensations of fear, because it may mean that they are right at their growth edge. They're right where they need to be for their own happiness, for our planet's happiness. Well, I'd like to bring in your co-author, Jeffrey Perkins, into the conversation now. Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you. Jeffrey, I'm, I'm wondering if you could read for me a section from your book. And I'm thinking of the time when you and Frankie were getting in a cab in Boston. One spring day not long ago, the two of us hailed a cab in Boston. Noting the driver's strong Russian accent, Frankie asked, So what do you think of America? Hesitant at first, he finally blurted out, You Americans are all afraid. As we approached Harvard Square, two BMWs passed us. Those people are the most afraid, the driver said, gesturing at the cars. They're afraid they'll lose it. In Russia, we feared the KGB. Here, you don't trust anyone. You're all afraid of each other. That rings true. And, uh, it does. <laughs> in a profound way. And we're, we're going to be talking about how this affects people concerned about environmental change and, and what they are trying to do or not trying to do about it. But first, I need to know more about your work, Jeff. What was it that was going on for you that, that hooked you into this notion of, of uh, courage in a culture of fear? Well, I began to ask my friends, really, what it is that they were interested in. And I would hear all these great ideas and the things that they were interested in. And then I would always hear why actually exploring them wouldn't be prudent. And I began to ask myself, what is the result of all of these people, well-meaning and uh, you know, people who have great ideas? What is the price for our society of all of us stopping ourselves from actually exploring them? You know, and, and that is really what made me take this seriously because I felt that um, so much more is possible if we're able to reimagine this pulling back as actually a signal that we are on the right track. And that's really kind of what, what made me realize that um, perhaps it's, it's more cultural. You know, our fear, as the cab driver suggests, is really because of a, a culture which is kind of telling us to go along, even though we're a democracy and, it, you know, it's kind of that balancing act. But I, I think that's, it was really listening to the stories of other people and realizing that these are people who have so much to offer. You know, I know, you know, when you know your friends and you know kind of who they are, you want them to get out there and do the most that they can do. And when they don't, you kind of realize, what is this? You know, what is the real thing that's holding them back here? Uh, so that was really what kind of got me, got me going. Now, this book seems to me that it could easily be shelved under self-help. So, so Frankie, tell me, why do you also think it should go under, say, nature and the environment? Well, 
Let's go back to this question of why are we as societies and now a world community in some ways creating that which none of us as individuals want? I mean, none of us would want global warming or the extinction of species or air pollution that is now killing on average 200 Americans every day. So to me, the environmental devastation that we're experiencing is directly a result of people not being able to act on their own true heart's desire. And that then relates very much to fear. And so what we talk about in our book, we tell stories, not just our own stories, but others. And one of my all-time heroes in life is a woman named Wangari Mathai, who, if she had simply responded in the hardwired ways to fear, well, we would have missed out on a great deal because this woman planted seven trees on Earth Day in 1977. She was told by her husband and then by the foresters in Kenya, no, 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 uh, you have nothing to offer. Uh, Her plan was that to reforest Kenya would require tens of thousands of villagers planting trees, creating tree nurseries, and they said, no, 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 and really ridiculed her, and she kept walking and didn't let the fear of rejection and ridicule stop her. And do you know what? That action has rippled, rippled, rippled now to 20 million trees that have been planted as a result of her not simply retracting with fear of criticism of separation, rejection, but walking with it. And so for me, the environmental crisis is very much connected to this misunderstanding of of fear that we are at a new point in our social evolution where we can consciously do something new and creative with fear rather than simply in our old hardwired way, simply retreat before it. Now, Frank, in your book, you say that there's anti-community that's being formed uh, in the world, and that there's a corporate culture of anti-community that uh, that's going global. Can you give some examples of this? Well, certainly, if if we believe that the only way that we're going to stay uh, accepted by the tribe, and if we believe that there's not enough to go around, then we will be driven by this narrow production more and more and more and more and more, which, of course, is one aspect of why uh, species extinction air pollution groundwater is is uh now we've created a dead zone in the in the Gulf of Mexico in part result of runoffs from agriculture because of this production drive based on the scarcity myth the point is that we're driving more and more production but it's not connected to human need and so it it just keeps on spinning and creating more and more fear now let's look at your own process in doing this book um I believe you wrote that uh, at some point, maybe halfway through the process of putting this thing together, you guys froze up. You said, oh, fear, doubt, insecurity took over, and uh, you weren't sure you were going to be able to finish this thing. Why, and and, and, and what made you go on, Jeff? Well, there was a a time in the process where um, the book was called Fear Means Go, and what's interesting is we actually found that publishers were not... They they told us people won't buy a book called Fear Means Go, <laughs> so we had to put it at the end of our uh, end of our title. But really, what the truth of the matter is is that I think we in our, in our own process were dealing with these issues and saying, "This is are we crazy here? Are we missing something?" You know, and I think that's really a sign that you're on to something. I mean, you know, we had to basically look back at our lessons, which we have to do all the time. And I think that's the most important thing to recognize is that Frankie and I, you know, have lots of fear, and it's not that we've somehow graduated. I mean, I talk in the book about a time when I needed to speak on 
on the work that I've been doing around fear and, and really feeling like I should be above it, like somehow I become the expert, you know? And instead, what it really became was to be humbled again and realize, wow, this is such a powerful gut reaction that is so natural. I mean, I think the most important thing in this book is to help people investigate this further. It's not to say that in every situation you should ignore your fear or, you know, or do something, jump off the building. You know, that's not what we're saying. What we're really saying is for too long we've ignored this most powerful emotion and its consequences. And what we're really saying is let's look at this not only as an individual but as a culture, as a community. Yeah, I, I, in my case, um, about six months before our deadline, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, oh, my goodness, how am I going to do this book? Uh, my radiation treatments are going to be right up toward the very end of this deadline. And, and when the three months before the um, deadline, I was facing these radiation treatments, and I was just just absolutely gripped with fear. I was very teary and just felt alone in the world, and how can I possibly do this? And then I thought, oh, you know, every once in a while, it's a good idea to listen to one's own advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I started taking these, these, what we were writing to heart. And within, really, about a week, I transformed the whole experience of my radiation treatments. And I started imagining that actually that this was an expensive spa that I had signed up for. And I started reframing the whole experience for myself as an opportunity to really focus on healing, to focus on myself, to have a break from the deadline pressure. And within a week, I started looking forward to going to these radiation treatments every day. And it was, it was I, I laughed so hard because at first, I, I completely forgot the message of our own book. And then when I started listening to my own advice, I realized, yeah, it's possible to reframe our experience, to use our consciousness to reframe. Francis Moore and Jeffrey Perkins are co-authors of the book, You Have the Power, Choosing Courage in a Culture of Fear. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next week on Living on Earth, Mercury. It's a known toxic metal that damages the nervous system. We try to keep it out of the food we eat and the air we breathe, but in some communities, it's sprinkled around the house, burned in a candle, applied to the body, often to bring luck. I think we're not just being contaminated by the incinerator. I think we're contaminating ourselves by using this product at our homes. The Ritual Use of Mercury, next week on Living on Earth. Until then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week with the rhythm of a coal train winding its way through Colorado. Clay Reeves recorded the scene for the CD, Day of Sound.
Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young, with help from Carl Lindemann and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Diana Schoberg, and Monica Wright. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and more. Women of Inspiration speak at the Stonyfield Strong Women programs taking place in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Wellborn Ecology Fund. This is NPR, National Public Radio.